Welcome to Crossroad International Church, where it's all about Jesus. If you are in Kuwait and looking for a church to call home, we would love the opportunity to welcome you at one of our Friday services. Now, here's this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to see you. Thank you. Uh, normally, I'm up on the uh, 11th floor with the kids, so uh, it's quite a treat to be down here. Normally, to enjoy listening to a sermon, but as it happens today, it looks like I'm, I'm preaching. So, uh, it's, it's good that we can come together uh, around God's Word. And we're going to be looking, uh, continuing our series in Hebrews. So, let's read through Hebrews chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, please look up Hebrews in the New Testament uh, towards the end. And chapter 3. And we're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, We're going to be focusing on verses 7 through to 19. But we need to kind of have that, um, the background from the earlier verses as well. So let's read through together there. Let's hear God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is written, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? 
but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak. And Father, we need ears to hear your voice this morning. We pray that your spirit would be amongst us and would minister to each one of us. Father, we pray that we would not have any semblance of hardness of heart as we hear your word. Help us to hear what you would have to say. Lord, would you challenge us? Would you change us? Would you do a work of eternity in this room today? And if there are any here who do not know you, that they would see something of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 7.59. It was another beautiful morning. Blue skies, a gentle breeze, perfect. And the excitement of the previous day, it was still in the air. Families were running around together. There were the kids squabbling over toys like they normally do. Parents were trying their very best to uh, hold conversations over breakfast. And uh, for, for some people, it was a very normal type of morning. But for others, this was a once-in-a-lifetime holiday. And it was absolutely perfect. It was 8.19 a.m., 20 minutes later. And they were all dead. A hundred-foot mass of water smashed through the whole coastal town of Banda Aceh in Sumatra. And in one moment, 100,000 people, 100,000, entered into eternity. It was 9.30 a.m. An hour and a half later, tourists were wondering why the sea had receded. Why were the fish on damp sand? What was going on? And in a moment, a huge wave came through and took out all those people on the beach and smashed into Phuket, Thailand. 5,400 people entered into eternity. It was 10.30 a.m., two and a half hours later. Chennai was next. 10,000 souls. And then it was Sri Lanka. Some of the worst devastation that was seen. And another 30,000 people perished. The 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, it came without any warning whatsoever. There was a massive 9.1 magnitude subsea earthquake. And that caused that huge tsunami to go in and to smash into all these coastal areas. But imagine, imagine if there was something that could have been done. I don't know, maybe some uh, subsea geophones that could listen out for these earthquakes and could send warning signals out to the coastal areas. Maybe some device that measures wave height, and here comes an exceptionally big wave, and it sends out a signal so that these coastal areas could be warned. 
quarter of a million people died in that tsunami because there was no warning. Today's message is a warning. It's a warning about something that is deadly. It's deadly to your soul. And this is a hard message to hear. And it's been a hard message to prepare. And it's going to be a hard message to preach. But it's necessary. The message is a gracious warning to you from God Almighty. It's weighty. It's serious. And as we look over this passage, we're going to look into the black heart of apostasy and what this looks like. So first, we're going to look at something called the insanity of unbelief. And we'll look through verses 7 through to 11. And we'll see an example from history. We'll see the delusional power of disbelief. And we'll see it in some really unlikely circumstances. And then we're going to look at how the writer to the Hebrews, how he applies that to the young church, most likely in Rome that we were thinking about last week, uh, who were to be warned about apostasy. And there we'll consider the necessity for perseverance. So two things we're going to look at, the insanity of unbelief and the necessity for perseverance. And we're going to be reminded of God's gracious warning to us. So let's look at the insanity of unbelief as we look at what the writer to the Hebrews wanted to share. Now, there's a couple of introductory points that I just want to bring out of this text before we start delving into it. And the first one is the word in verse 7 that we start with, which is the word, therefore. And as Chris pointed out last week, and I know Pastor Steve has pointed out as well, whenever you see the word, therefore, you need to look back to understand why it's there for. And this, therefore, is looking back to the, the whole argument that's being built one after another. And uh, last week, Chris was preaching from verses 1 through to verse 6, and we're reminded of the supremacy of Christ over Moses. And this would have been a huge thing for these Jewish believers, uh, most likely in Rome. Here was... Um, this man, Moses, who was really revered by them. Moses, who wrote down the law, who was given the law of God, who led the Israelites out of captivity. This Moses, and he's described as a servant in God's house. And then it's compared with Jesus, who is supreme. And he is the son who is over God's house, and we are his house. So we see something of the significance of this passage that we're going to look into when we look at who Moses was, this central guy from the Old Testament, and what's happening in verses 7 through to 11 that we're looking at happened around his time. So it's significant that we're building this argument up. Secondly, we see here in verse 7 about the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. This is the third person of the Trinity, and it's his words that we've got to be careful to listen to. It's a reminder to us as well that we don't divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament. They're not 
different books, and we don't ignore the Old Testament. If you ignore the Old Testament, you'll never get the book of Hebrews, because it's rich, really rich in Old Testament stuff. And you realize as you read through it more and more, you get blown away by whoever wrote this book. Wow, what a knowledge they had of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament and the New Testament are together. They are authored by the Holy Spirit. And everything that we hear is God's word that's meant for our correction, our instruction, our training in righteousness. And we'll see, as we keep going through this book of Hebrews, how these two things, the New Testament and the Old Testament, how they come together. So with those two prequels in place, let's look through this, this verses 7 through to 11. And I want you to see, there's four things to help us through here, four things to keep in mind. There's a warning, there's an example, there's an accusation, and there is a verdict. And they're all packed into this passage. Uh, And these words follow on from uh, the reading that Laura gave to us earlier from Psalm 95. And that psalm starts so warm and joyful, isn't it? Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Talks about songs of praise. There's a declaration of God's greatness. He's the king of kings. He's the maker of everything. He's our God. We're the people of his pasture. We're his sheep. And at that point, the Holy Spirit cries out this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the warning. And the fact that this warning is repeated time and time again through the book of Hebrews, it's like, it's like the author is putting on caps locks or doing bold font or underlining and italicizing. He's flashing it out there. He wants you to get it. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. What's going on here? What's it all about? What does it mean, anyway, to harden? I want you to have a picture of maybe like a tree, a living tree, and it's growing, and it's bearing fruit. But when it dies, it, it, it doesn't produce fruit anymore. It's dead, and it's good for nothing. And in fact, all it does is just dry out. All that sap and all the goodness that's within it disappears. The thing becomes dry and worthless, unless you want to build a fire, unless you want to burn it. So think of a piece of wood that's just dried out, this whole concept of drying. Think of clay that gets cooked in an oven. All the moisture comes out and it becomes rock hard. That's what it's trying to get at. That's the picture of something that becomes hardened. But what's it mean? Well, let's look at our context and let's go on to the second thing. After the warning, let's look at this as an example. And this is a main focus here. So, the example cited when God's people of old, the Israelites, they did harden their hearts. And there's two words that are descriptive here in this passage. If you look in there in verse verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And we link that back to Psalm 95, where it talks about two very specific places called Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. So this story that we have here in Hebrews is linked back to Psalm 95, but actually it has its origins way back in Exodus chapter 17. And at this point in Israel's history, something incredible has happened. 
They were in slavery for 430 years. And God comes on the scene and he saves them. There's ten horrendous plagues, you remember them. Water turned into blood. There were frogs that came out everywhere. There were gnats like the dust on the ground. There were flies that swarmed over everything. Livestock that died. Boils that broke out on everyone. Hail that came down and killed people. Locusts that devoured anything that was left. Darkness so that people couldn't see around them at all. For three days, people could do nothing. Were on the verge of death. And finally, the destroyer, the one who destroyed the firstborn in every home, except for those who had the blood of a lamb painted over the lintels. And it was only after that incident, you remember the story with Pharaoh, he wouldn't let God's people go, and then eventually he did. And it's interesting, there's another story about hardness of heart with Pharaoh, but that's another story. God led his people out of slavery with a pillar of cloud by day to protect them. And we get that here, don't we, in Kuwait. When you're out in the sunshine and it's hot, you're super glad of having a cloud that just blocks out the sun for a bit and gives you some protection. And also there's a pillar of fire by night. And we get that too in Kuwait because when it gets to winter, it does actually feel a bit chilly. It'd be quite nice to have some heat, some warmth. And it was also protection for them. They could see around them. And then we get to this incident where the Israelites, they get to the banks of the Red Sea. And and now something's changed because Pharaoh's changed his mind yet again. And he decides he's going to chase after the Israelites. He wants them back in slavery. And so he musters his army in his anger and he chases after the Israelites. And you can imagine this, this large amount of people, maybe a million or so people, on the banks of the Red Sea and this huge Egyptian um, army like the world-class army heading towards them. And I guess I'd be pretty afraid too. They grumble and they complain. And God displays his power. He does something wonderful. An east wind is caused to blow and the Red Sea, it just parts. And the people go through, not on damp ground, they go through on dry ground. It's incredible. And then they get to the other side And then the Egyptian army comes plowing through and they're after them and then God causes the Red Sea to collapse onto the Egyptian army. It is devastated. A global power decimated. Can you imagine what it would be like to be back in Egypt? Your army's gone. Most of the men have gone. All the firstborn have gone. No crops, no cattle. What do you have? They were absolutely decimated. The people for a little while feared and respected God. But then we get to, from that was chapter 14 of Exodus. We're going to get to 17 in just a moment. I just need to work through these chapters to give you the background. And we get to chapter 15. And now the people are thirsty. They need water. We all need water. God knows that we need water. But these people grumbled. They complained again. And the water was bitter So God made it sweet. Chapter 16. It's all about food. God knows that we need food. The people complain. The people grumble. They want something else. They think back to Exodus and and to Egypt. And they think of all the lovely vegetables that they had. They're suddenly wearing these rose-tinted 
spectacles that it's, you know, a great place to be in Egypt. And God gives them manna, God gives them quail, and God sustains them, not just then, but for 40 years in the wilderness. So that's chapter 16. So I've seen grumbling in 14, 15, and 16, and then we get to chapter 17. And you'd think, you'd really think at this point, the people would get, ah, oh, God has our good in mind here. I don't get that our circumstances don't look quite right. They're not really what I was expecting, but God is providing for us. But no, they grumble. In fact, they're grumbling so much, they're picking up stones and they're going to hurl them at Moses. They're going to kill the guy, God's prophet. That's how much they respect him and how much they respect God. But God in his grace provides water for the people. And that place is Massa. That place is Meribah. That's the rebellion. That's the testing of verse 8. It's an example of becoming hardened. It's an example of no longer being able to hear God's voice and understand his grace. Now, there is one more time where Meribah is mentioned And this time it's in Numbers 20 at a place called Kadesh. And guess what? It's about water. They still haven't got it. They quarrel against Moses and Aaron. And and Moses, unfortunately, didn't obey God and he hit the rock twice. The people drank and they had water. And the first instance we had in 17 is like the beginning of the wanderings. And the second part, from Numbers 20, is focusing further on. And what Hebrews is getting at is there's this pattern throughout their whole wanderings of grumbling and of complaining against God. And it seemed to be tied into their circumstances. They're expecting so much, and, and they find themselves in this desert land, and they would not trust God. Who just led them out of Egypt? who just led them across the Red Sea. But they would not trust him. And we see patterns of behavior that then start to show there's unthankfulness, there's unfaithfulness, there's unbelief, which leads to godly action. And if you go into Deuteronomy 1 sometime and read through there, you'll see how how Moses, when he's telling the people about their condition. He explains to them and reminds them that you were in your tents and you were saying that God hates us. That's why he's brought us out into this desert to die, because God hates us. The complete opposite of what God intended all along from this exodus. See how hardening is so deceptive. There's the example. Let's look at the accusation that comes. Because of this, what does God say? God is provoked in verse 10. For 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my way. Psalm 95 is pretty strong here. It says loathed. God loathed that generation. God detested them. And he had that accusation that they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. 
And now we're beginning to see something of the heart of the matter. What was behind all that grumbling? What was behind all that complaining? What was it with these people that they kept talking about going back to Egypt? Why would you even think like that? In a nutshell, because their hearts were bad. And they wouldn't, and they couldn't submit to God. They came out of Egypt, and they were glorifying in their salvation. They were free at last, 430 years of slavery. And while things were going well, oh, it was, it was easy to have faith, no problem. It's great to have great confidence in God when things are up, when you're going through the Red Sea and you can turn around, you can see the Egyptians, there they are, the army stuck behind the pillar of cloud there. You get to the other side and you can rejoice. It's easy then, but it didn't last long. As soon as hardship came, the people were looking straight back to Egypt and thinking of the comforts there instead of the hell of the existence that they had as slaves. You know, it's not the first time that we see an accusation like this in the Bible about hearts that go astray. It's not really a new phenomenon. If you go back and you'll, you'll read words like this, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the first book of the Bible. And that is the truest description of man. Our hearts, they're evil. And what happened next in Genesis? Judgment. The whole earth was destroyed except for eight souls. And what happened to the Israelites? Well, all but two of them who came out through, that, uh, through the Exodus lived to see God's promised land to Abraham. The rest, well, that's a million sandy graves in the wastes of a desert. There's the accusation, the verdict. I swore in my wrath. There's an interesting concept. We don't hear much of the wrath of God these days. Swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God is righteous and God has wrath against sin. And he declares to these people that they shall not enter his rest. They're not going to get to the promised land. They're not going to find their abode in God. They're not going to find their place of security, their place of true joy and happiness. And all this happens because of how they didn't listen to God and how it affected their hearts. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but it's actually a really dangerous thing to be here this morning. It's dangerous to hear God's word because it will cause one of two things to happen. Your heart will either become soft or your heart will become hard. You will either obey or you will disobey. You will either find rest in God or you will constantly always be searching for something that never satisfies. And ultimately, you'll either live or you'll die. 
And that is the insanity of unbelief. Let's look to the second point, which is the necessity of perseverance. So we've had this example from the people of God from long ago. Let's look at from verse 12 onwards. And the the writer to the Hebrews, he wants to apply this Old Testament learning to these um, beleaguered Christians in Rome. He knows something of their difficulties, their sufferings, their endurance, and he wants to make sure that they stand firm in the face of trials. He doesn't want them to be like the guys that we've read about in verses 7 through to verse 11. So the the writer to the Hebrews has a concern that none in the church should fall away from the living God, that nobody puts their eternal future in jeopardy. So he exhorts them. What does he say? Verse 12, take care. Because if you don't take care, it's very possible that you could have, what's it say here? Take care, brothers, lest there be in in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Wow. An unbelieving heart. And that's from the word unbelieving, that's from the Greek apista. And it means faithlessness, disbelief, unfaithfulness as well as unbelief. And it's where we get our word apostasy. So this faithlessness, this disbelief, this unfaithfulness, this unbelief, if it's not checked, will lead us to fall away from the living God. But who's the writer addressing here? It's not those outside the church. It's those in. Take care brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Brothers, in in chapter 3, verse 1, they're called holy brothers, uh, or that those who found their identity in Christ, they have this heavenly calling. And yet in this mix of people, there can be those who may fall away from the living God. This falling away, this withdrawing from, this departing from the living God. And, and we can see now why the, the writer to the Hebrews picked this section from Psalm 95. Because that's the same description happens in Psalm 95. You have all this joyful talk of God, how great he is. We're his people, we're the sheep of his pasture. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the same thing's happening here again. Brothers, take care that in none of you there's an unbelieving evil heart. So here's a question. Is it possible then to be a Christian and lose your salvation? That's a question that comes to mind if you're reading this passage, right? Is that what it's saying? When the writers address them as brothers, does this mean there's, there's no assurance of salvation for anyone? Uh, how did these early Christians understand this? Well, let's look through the passage a little bit further so we can understand something like that. And what's in the middle of this really hard passage, and it is a hard passage, and I get that, there is a change, there's a glimpse of light here in the middle where there's an alternative route 
to the dark paths of unbelief. And it says in verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you, none of you, none of you, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So let's think about verse 13. The individual members of this church in Rome were to exhort one another every single day. What's that mean? What's it do? What's the purpose of that? Well, the word exhort, it means to call on, uh, to entreat, to admonish, to urge, to beseech someone to go in a certain direction and to keep going in that direction. It's an active thing. Uh, quick story about Johnny and Alistair Brandley. They're, they're triathletes, and it was the World Triathlon Series uh, grand finale in Mexico in 2016. Now, Johnny, who's the younger brother, he needed to win this race so that he could be crowned the world champion. So he and his brother, Alistair, Alistair they pushed on really hard at the beginning. They had to do a one-and-a-half-kilometer swim. That would kill me. They had to do a 40-kilometer bike ride, maybe. And they had to do a 10-kilometer run at the end, perhaps. Johnny set off at a great pace. They both went through the swim, they went through the ride really well, super strong. And then Johnny at the running, he, man, he just disappeared. He was going great. The plan was going perfect. It looked like he was on target, he was going to win the triathlon. Everything that is until the last 1,000 meters, that's all, the last kilometer. And Johnny started to weave across the road. And he was getting seriously dehydrated. Uh, and, and it was actually in the finishing straight, you may have seen the video of this, where, where Johnny's just, he can't hardly move forward. Somehow he's managed to drag himself through the last 800 meters or so. And then here comes his brother, Alistair, his older brother, who's paced himself, he's sensible. And he comes up behind and he sees Johnny and he doesn't run past. He grabs him, puts his arm over his shoulder and he hauls him along. Another athlete runs by and wins in the last 100 meters or so. It's really close. But Alistair carries his brother, who's stumbling along, and then right at the line, he pushes him over, so his brother gets second place. And then Alistair crosses over the line in third place. That's a very um, physical description of what exhorting is. Alistair was exhorting his brother to go in a certain direction in a very physical way. He picked him up, he carried him to the line, it involved energy and effort, and a lot of self-sacrifice. He gave up winning the race to help his brother. I can't even imagine you know, how, how tired you'd be. You've just swum one and a half kilometers, you've just biked 40 kilometers, you've just run 9.9 9 kilometers, and now you've got to pick up your brother. Well, for us, Exhorting one another involves energy and effort as well. It's not a passive, oh, it's okay, you'll be fine, I'm sure, bless you. We can't have that kind of flaky conversation when we're looking down the line at apostasy from drifting away from the living God. We have to be together as a church, urging one another on so that 
No one is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So these early Christians in Rome, they were to be persistent, persistent at pursuing the things of God. They had to encourage and build one another up. They had to know the promises of God. They had to know his word and cherish them. They were to live in the light of the freedom of God's grace. It's that kind of exhortation that they were going to need in the future. Because if these Christians were in Rome at the time we think they are, in a few years' time, these guys are going to have their hands tied to posts in Colosseums. These guys were going to see their friends and their family ripped apart by lions. These guys were going to be dipped in oil and set on fire right in front of all these spectators for Nero's garden parties. You can't have flaky, it'll be okay then. You need to exhort, to encourage, to build up just like we do too. So this antidote that we see to apostasy, you know here, it's, it's not going it alone. You can't go it alone. You can't try and make things work out for yourself in your own strength. It's daily mutual encouragement. It's daily mutual accountability. Because if we don't have this, then we're prone to the deceitfulness of sin, to the delusion of sin. And sin, you know, it promises us so much, doesn't it? It says, you'll, you'll feel better if you do this. Or the classic one, uh, it's not hurting anyone. Or no one else needs to know. God's way too restrictive. God didn't really mean that. He just wants to spoil your fun. Sounds like the Garden of Eden. Sin is all about the here and now. It's about me, me, me. And sin, when it's left alone, it desensitizes you to further sin. Sin, if it's left alone, desensitizes you to spiritual realities. It makes your conscience seared. And it leaves you apathetic. It leaves you hardened. And ultimately, it leaves you dead. Unless sin is exposed, sin will delude. Unless sin is seen as sin, it will continue to deceive. Unless sin is dealt with, it will spread like a cancer to your soul. And that's why we need each other. Nobody, nobody crumbles in a day. It's just a slowly, gradual wearing away. Jesus says this in John 3, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So going back to the earlier question, can a Christian lose their salvation? Well, let's look on into verse 14, and it starts with the word for, for we share in Christ. 
It's a conditional, forward-looking argument. For we share in Christ, that's the perfect tense in there, that is, we are and we continue to be in Christ if, if what? If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And in a moment, the writer of the Hebrews is going to expand this further with some more history. But he wants them to make sure that they hold that confidence firm to the end, just like we saw in verse 6 last week. It's a repetition here. We have it again. The reason that we can have confidence that we are in Christ is that we persevere in the faith to the end, that we don't give up, that we don't get sidetracked by sin, that we don't become hardened through unbelief or through faithlessness or through unfaithfulness. We're watching out. We're taking care. We're making sure we're walking in God's ways. The Christian perseveres, not in their own strength, but in the strength that God gives to them. The converse is true as well. If your life is characterized by faithlessness or unfaithfulness or unbelief and you call yourself a Christian, then you're deceived. Sin has done its job. You're deluded into thinking that you're okay, that somehow you're immune to God's great judgment, that you don't have to worry about such things because you said a prayer years ago, or I'm a regular church member. You might even say, well, I'm a member of this church. Is salvation to you any more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card? If that's something of what your heart is like, I urge you, beware. Because you're in great danger, and you need to see that danger. And that's why this message to you this morning is a gracious warning from God. Yes, it's hard, but you need to hear. Don't be like those Israelites of long ago. It's not how you start, though start you must. It's how you finish. And believe it or not, uh, seven years ago, I, I ran the, the Dublin Marathon. And uh, I'd, I trained by myself for quite a while. And the first half of the marathon was fantastic. I had probably my personal best for the half marathon time. I was really enjoying it. Uh, there was a great crowd to start you off. And then you went into the countryside. And, uh, and it was very beautiful as well. But then I, I did something really silly about the halfway mark. I got one of these sachets of, uh, like, a power gel. And I, I'd never trained using one of these sachets of power gels before. And they always say to you, don't do anything different when you do your marathon than what you do in training. And I decided, oh, well, it's going to give me some energy. So I ripped the top off and I squirted the thing into my mouth. And it was, it was pretty horrible, actually. And uh, I thought it was going to help. Actually, it made me feel sick. So from mile 13 to mile 20, oh my goodness, I nearly gave up so many times. I was walking, I was really struggling. And then I got just towards the end uh, of the, maybe about the 19, 20 mile mark, and somebody just gave me a banana, and I trained with bananas. <laughs> I had a stash of bananas and run with them. So I got this banana, peeled it off, and I ate the banana. Oh, I felt so much better, but I was still weak. And then what was really great 
is for the last five miles, people, there's a huge crowd, and they were cheering you on, you know, come on, you can do it. It's just round the corner. It was five kilometers around the corner. <laughs> Keep going, you're nearly there. My legs are falling off, I'm still going. And then I got there, I got to the end. It was so wonderful. It's not how you start, though start you must, but it's how you finish. Let's just see how the writer continues here in verse 15. He says, today, this is how it ties in. If you hear his voice, here it is again. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't do that. Keep going. Persevere. And then in verses 16 to 19, the writer here, he uses three sets of two questions to help us get the point in case we haven't got it yet. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Question one. Answer question. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Implication? Yes, it was. They were God's people. Verse 17. Question. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Answering question. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yes, it was. It was God's people. And to whom do you swear that they would not enter his rest? Responding question. But to those who were disobedient? Implication? Yes. It was God's people. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They didn't enter because of apostasy. They didn't enter because their hearts were hard. What about you? Perhaps you're sitting here today and deep down you know that although you look the part, deep down in your heart really, you're not sure whether you're a Christian or not. Maybe there's deep-seated rebellion in your life and sin Maybe you're excusing it away. You don't want it to be exposed. Nobody likes to expose that kind of stuff. Maybe you cover it up with being busy. You know, you can, you can pray like a Puritan at the life groups, but your heart be dead. It's just a form of words. You might be able to sing like an angel, and you love singing the praises of God, but actually it's just a tune and you don't actually have a heart to worship God. Maybe you serve. That can happen too. You can serve, and you can give yourself to lots of things. But deep down, maybe you just try to compensate for your sin by working your way somehow into God's good books. You're seeking the praise of men, not the praise of God, so you can feel better about yourself. Maybe you don't like your circumstances. It's hard. You blame God. Maybe you're hurt by others. And you blame God too. If that's you this morning, if you feel any kind of conviction in your heart about your situation, let me tell you, if you think it's maybe that you've gone too far, it's too much. It's too much shame. There's too many regrets. I've let God down too many times. 
I've let down my family. I've let down my friends. Let me tell you that it's not too late. Let me tell you instead of God's grace and favour that can melt a heart of stone, of a love that is stronger than death, that can meet your deepest needs. It can deal with that deep-seated pain in your soul. Let me remind you of mercy that's rich and free, of our Saviour, Jesus, who can destroy the power and the guilt of your sin and gives you the Holy Spirit to live within you so that you can persevere. It's not too late. Let me tell you too of a man who can testify to these things, who's known the depths of depravity, who's been in the depths of despair, lived behind a mask, said and done the right things at the right time, but whose heart has inwardly ached with the hypocrisy of it all, who's let down family and friends, who sinned against the goodness of God. That person's me. It's not by accident that I'm preaching here today. But it's because of this passage that I urge you to come to Christ. To come and to see Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Come by the eye of faith to him. Look to him, your great high priest, He's the only one who could save you. He's the only one who can save me. But you must come. You must repent. That means turning away from where you are, turning away from your selfishness, turning to God, all the desires of your heart now inclined to God, not to self. You must turn from your sin to put it away. You must believe and trust on Jesus as your only hope of salvation from God's righteous wrath against your sin. You must seek the Lord with all your heart. You must pursue him and you must do it today. So I I urge you, church, I implore you by the mercies of God today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Oh Father in heaven these are these are hard words but Father Father, we believe they are And we know they are your words because they speak deep to our hearts. (coughs) And Father, we pray that we would not stray from you. That we would not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
but God in heaven, that you would pour your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we may persevere together as a community of your people. Father, I pray for these hundred and however many souls in this room here, and for the kids upstairs as well, and the teachers, that, Father, none of us would fail and fall from you, but that, God, together, we might make it home to heaven, our true home, and find the joy that we've been longing for, the peace that our hearts have ached for all our time on earth, when we see you face to face, when we rejoice with you, our God, in such a great salvation. Father, take us forward from here. Lord, I pray for those who have been convicted by your word, who need to put things right with you, for those who need to come to you, for those who need to confess sin, for those who are struggling and are just finding it hard and need that encouragement, who need that exhortation. Father, may we find that in you today and going forward. Father, help us to be there for one another, to keep a check with each other, to make sure we're, we're well and we're walking and we're rejoicing in you. Help us not to fall away. So, Father, we come to you and we seek your mercy and we seek your grace, which is so wonderfully free and so wonderfully liberating. Help us learn all that we've been thinking about this morning and take it to heart. Lord, I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.